0: Y feliz Azteca año nuevo. To all you monolinguists and bilinguists out there in Radiolandia, you are tuned into another full circle production of the Spanglish Power Hour. Yo soy your host and Pocho por Vida, Josiah Luis, and on tonight's show, you're going to hear the words of the border Brujo himself, cross-cultural performance artist and leader of the Pocha Nostra, Guillermo Gomez-Pena. We also have a commentary on all the gentrifooding going on here in the Bay Area. And the one and only J.C. Howard hits the streets of Fruitvale and asks that perplexing cultural question, What is a pocho? And later on in the show, platicamos un poco con Chicano writer and contributor to NPR's Fresh Air, Dagoberto Gilb, who's going to be reading an excerpt from one of my favorite stories of his. All this and the view from the borders of Tromplandia. Much, much more on tonight's episode of the Spanglish Power Hour. No se vayan. Buenas noches. On this eve of the Mexica New Year, Nahui Tecpatl, you are tuned into another full circle production of the Spanglish Power Hour. Bilingual news and Spanglish views coming to you live from the KPFA studios here in Berkeley. In tonight's episode, mi gente, we have words for you. And not just any kind of words, but beautiful bilingual ones. Palabras de protesta, de poesía y de letiratura. You're gonna to have to forgive my pochismo right there. And now the first voice that you're gonna hear is none other than the metal metal of the Pocha Nostra, the Mad Mex himself, Guillermo Gomez Pena. Let's have a listen.
1: What to do about your acute case of Mexiphobia? Dear American citizen, do you feel like a minority in your own city? have you ever thought i didn't get that job or that grant because i'm white when you hear people speaking spanish in a public place does it ever cross your mind that we may be talking about you don't you hate having to speak the mexican language to order your fajitas without lard do you feel that quote-unquote illegal immigrants of getting free and immediate medical services while taxpayers like you pay a fortune for health insurance and then spend weeks waiting for an appointment to see a doctor named Gonzales? Where does this end? Let's go deeper into your subconscious. Aren't you afraid that the Mexican crime cartels are already here operating in your neighborhood? Has it ever crossed your mind that perhaps your Mexican nanny and gardener might in fact be members of the Tijuana cartel or even worse, a redundant sleeping cell? Do you feel that the Chicano Intifada is about to start any moment? Aren't you afraid of mysterious diseases such as the swine flu brought to the US by highly infectious aliens like me? Do you often find yourself awake at 3 in the morning watching B-movies on TV with titles such as Alien vs. Predator, the 50-foot wetback from Mars, or the attack of the killer Chihuahua? Do you have a hard time differentiating between a photo of Carlos Santana and one of Gaddafi? Señor... Aren't you scared that those sexy Latin boys next door might seduce your innocent daughter, or even worse, your wife? And you, señorita, when you encounter a Latino male in the street, do you feel he's undressing you with his gaze? Do you even know what the word gaze means? If you answer positively to at least three of the above questions, you're literally suffering from mexiphobia, a seemingly rare psychosomatic condition created by xenophobic politicians and hysterical TV pundits with the sole objective of distracting you from the real issues afflicting contemporary America. You know, the object of your fears may be fictional, but your fears themselves are real amigo, and you must confront them ahora. Orale,
0: Border Brujo. That was Guillermo Gomez Pena providing that cultural service message to all those Donald Trump supporters out there. What to do about your acute case of mexophobia? Reminding us Latinos que racism is truly a public health issue. We'll be hearing more from the Border Brujo later on in the show, so stay tuned. And up next... We have a subject by the all of you multicultural foodies and taco truck connoisseurs out there to chew on. Have a listen. Otra vez, it's time for random thoughts from a stoned pocho.
2: Time. Time.
0: Tonight we're going to spend a few momentos talking about the gentrifooding that comes along with all this gentrification. To me it's one of the more disturbing effects happening in the Bay Area's beloved and vital neighborhoods like the Fillmore and La Mision. Two neighborhoods in San Pancho where the waves of gentrification have had the largest impact on our cultures. Now what I mean when I say gentrifooding is this. They're replacing in these neighborhoods of local ma and pa soul food joints or familia own taquerias with upscale eateries serving a more whitewashed and mucho mas pricier version of the kind of food that has already been in the neighborhood for years. Now any resident of San Pancho knows exactly lo que estoy diciendo. Fifteen dollars is the price for a bowl of red beans and rice in one of the newer eateries in the Fillmore, San Francisco's Harlem of the West, where black folks can't afford to live in anymore and there are no jazz clubs left. The eviction of St. John Coltrane's African Orthodox Church by San Francisco a done deal yet? And cuando you roam the cleaner, wider, brighter Mission District nowadays, there are almost as many high-end burrito shops, or I should say rapido shops, as there are pour-over coffee stands. I'm on 24th Street, staring into the front window of one of those aforementioned rapito shops. They serve positive ion-infused aguafrescas and cage-free burritos. The tomatoes for their salsa is grown out in West Marin by Zen Buddhists who blindfold the tomatoes before picking them in order to reduce the trauma of separating them from the vine. If you don't believe me, you can see for yourself. It says so right there on the bottom of the menu that they've got taped to the window. Also in the window is an attractive millennial making corn tortillas. He's got a silver ice cream scooper to scoop the masa with, one of those brand new beard nets covering his portlanda sized facial hair, and an app on his iPhone that starts to smell like warm corn tortillas when it's time to flip them over. I watch him for a while. His hands never once touch the masa. When his app starts to smell like tortillas, he flips them with a shiny, stylized spatula and stacks them on a pile that look like fat, silver dollar pancakes. Each one of his tortillas are perfectly round and indistinguishable from the next one. I'm sure they were delicious. After all, that masa was mixed by Indias from the state of Chiapas and then shipped here to San Francisco by jet this morning. If you don't believe me, it says so right there on the menu that they got taped to the window. These places take our abuelos, our culturas recipes, throw in the trendiest, most expensive ingredients they can find, hang some calacas on the wall, want to frida's paintings over the door, and just like that, snap. They are what they say they are, never considering the theft of a culture that they've just committed, never considering that the flavor, that sabor that they are so desperately after to make a buck with, doesn't come so much from what ingredients they use, no, it comes from the culture, the cultura gives it flavor, whether it's African or Cubano or Mexicano, it's the culture. That created those dishes that have become so associated with Mexican food, with soul food. Created out of necessity, as well as ingenuity. But still, that food was a creation of love because it fed the cultura. Those beans and rice, esos arroz y frijoles, allowed the gente, the people who ate it, to go on all the way up to now, where in the present, on one of those revitalized blocks on Grand Avenue in Oakland, a Cuban restaurant opened up, serving ropa vieja, one of Cuba's signature comfort foods. Simply leftover flank steak stewed for hours and served over a plate of rice and beans. This Cuban restaurant that just opened up, not owned by a Cuban, is calling their dish ropa nueva, which translates to new clothes. How appropriate. And they're charging $24 for it. Have any of these restaurateurs ever considered the history that goes into a food recipe? Passed on from your abuela to your mama to you? This way of cooking something that has traveled. Just like the emigrante has traveled. Crossed borders, gone from one town to another. Repeated over and over. A repetition. A ritual that brings flavor, that brings sabor, a sabor that sustains you. And Simon, que si, I mean sabor, but I don't just mean flavor. And you can't high end that part, no matter how marbled that Neiman Ranch beef is or whatever exclusive fenced-in grove you get your aguacates from. But don't get me wrong either. I'm not saying that the epazote, the fresh garlic, the right way to simmer those black beans with freshly ground cumin isn't responsible for giving those black beans their flavor. But what I am saying to all you gentra fooders out there, I don't need me a $2,000 Cuisinart when me abuela's molcajete will do just fine. This has been Random Thoughts from a stoned pocho. Time Time on my Yes, that was indeed one stoned pocho, talking about the gentrifuding that we are forced to swallow nowadays in La Adia Bahia that we live in. We're going to take a short musical break, and when we return, my co producer J.C. Howard takes us to the streets of Fruitvale and asks La Pregunta Eternal, What is a pocho? When the Spanglish Power Hour returns, no se vayan.
3: malinche i'm your mama la malinche digan ma give me lean digan che and we're coming to cantar belly cant belly cant belly cant y llegamos a danzar belly dance belly dance belly dance Sonadita pa cantar, la dancita pa danzar Sonadita pa cantar, la dancita pa danzar De su tata, de su mamá y de su papa I'm your grandma, I'm my yaba Sonadita pa cantar, la dancita pa danzar Guacamole, de tortilla, guacamole, quesadilla chiles verdes y frijoles en sus sopes chiles de escamoles escamole. papayitas mm, sabrositas, papayitas jugositos ay que ricas las memelas con tequila, su sangrita y su chela heladita ah, su memela con salsita pico, 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 pico picocita Sobritos misichitos, mescalini su fe y yo sé, su payote, huitlacoche su bolillo, las pitayas no sensores, solo los tacos de guasontle. Jimmy, pues las acocis y quilakiles y jumiles, y su payote, cacahuate del mecate y su camote. Aguacate espinacate.
0: Taurus Margie Bermejo cinge la canción Mamacita del Mayabe. You are tuned in to 94.1 KPFA Radio Estación de la Comunidad right here in Berkeley, Califas. And tonight on the Spanglish Power Hour, we are reflecting on the power of nuestras palabras, on the power of our words. Now, one word que vas a oír muchas veces on the Spanglish Power Hour is the word pocho. Now, for our monolinguists and some of my bilinguist listeners out there who are not in the know, J.C. Howard went on a journey just for you.
2: The host of tonight's show, the Spanglish Power Hour, is Josiah Luis. Our Steam host's email address contains the word pocho, a word I always kind of wondered about when he first gave me his email address. So when he commissioned me a non-Latino... To research what that word meant, I'll tell you, I was way ahead of him. Like any good millennial, I started my journey of research on Wikipedia. Pocho, or pocha, is a term used by native-born Mexicans to describe Chicanos and those who have left Mexico. Oh, I thought. It's a kind of nice slang term to describe Chicanos, it's a symbol of pride, that's cool. So to hear it in their own words, I went to a group of people who live and work in the Fruitvale District in Oakland, a very Latino rich neighborhood with first and second generation Latinos. What is a pocho?
3: Pocho? We call pocho the people who his or her parents are from other country and they born
2: here. Would you say it's a good thing to be called a pocho?
3: I don't know if it's good or not, but I don't like it.
2: What is a pocho?
3: Supposedly,
4: it's a Mexican person who was born in the United States.
2: What do you think about that word? Would you or pocha, po pocho?
4: No, because I don't like the term. So,
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: ¿Qué es un pocho o un pocha? ¿Qué significa?
3: La persona que tiene padres latinos, pero que ha crecido aquí y que ha nacido aquí en Estados Unidos, o sí, en California. Personalmente no me gusta porque todos somos diferentes, con valores, ideas, costumbres diferentes, que me gusta que se respeten.
2: Wait a tick, this doesn't exactly sound like nice slang. It's
4: a derogative term for someone who can't speak Spanish, I wouldn't use it.
2: Would you consider your children pochas?
4: One is, no, I wouldn't use those words to describe my children. Okay, cool. (laughs) Es alguien que nació aquí. ¿Se considera usted o considera sus hijos pochos? No. ¿Por qué? Porque nacieron aquí. Son ciudadanos americanos.
2: <laughs> Although one respondent who was born in Mexico and moved to the states at 7 years old but does go back to visit hadn't even heard of the word. When I say the word pocho, what does that mean to you?
0: I don't know. I don't know what pocho
2: means. You don't know what a pocho is?
0: No, but it sounds bad. Like
2: What do you think it sounds like? Sancho. (laughs) One respondent said off the record that pocho can in some ways be synonymous with the n-word. Another expressed similar thoughts on the record, making reference to the fact that I myself am black
4: with your people, it's okay to use it among other people. I think Mexicans, I really do think, it's like, a, a, I don't like that word, it's just, I don't like it.
2: So who is it okay for it to use that word? For
4: no one, well, see I don't use it, to, I, uh-huh. Yeah, you're only really here in Mexico, I've never heard it here.
2: But you equated it to the end
4: When you guys call it, refer to each other as that, it's like a good, it's not, like, it's not, you don't mean it in a bad way. I mean, I see porcha in like a bad way, regardless. I feel like it's derogatory. It's like a derogatory term towards Mexicans or towards American because they're not following the Mexican tradition, culture. I don't like the word because I feel like it doesn't describe really who we are. It's just a term that somebody just put on the kids that were born with parents from Mexico, but it doesn't really, like, connect back to who we are and what we consider in our culture. So I feel like it's an insult. Pues es una persona que...
3: Habla dos idiomas?
4: ¿Se considera usted pocho o uh, alguno de sus
3: hijos? No. ¿Por qué? Porque hablamos o mis hijos hablan muy bien inglés y español.
2: The best conclusion that I could come to in conversation was this one.
4: It's like calling someone a up. Like they've sold their Mexican culture, that they've gotten rid of it, and because they adopted an American culture that has nothing to do with their past.
2: So I had to return to the source, Josiah Luis himself. If there's such negative and mixed feelings about this word, what does it mean to him, our own proud pocho? What is a pocho? What does it mean to you? What does that word mean to you? A pocho is a complicated creature.
0: He's an amalgamation of a Latino American and an American Latino. It's a complicated entity, and I'm interested to see how he develops in Los Estados Unidos. And uh, would you say it's a good thing to be a pocho? I proudly call myself a full-blooded pocho Indian. It is a good thing to be a pocho in America.
2: Yeesh, Josiah. You knew what you were doing when you gave me this task, didn't you? The word pocho is at least complicated, and at best being reclaimed by those who wish to forge their own path as Mexican-Americans. Thanks so much to Josiah Luis for sending me on this journey and to Rosie Hara for providing this mostly monolinguist with a little help in translation. Josiah Luis, back to you. That was
0: our own J.C. Howard. Gracias, J.C., bringing us un poquito closer to understanding that cultural enigma that is a pocho. Yeah, that's a strong word to some people. I mean, Simon mon si. palabras can affect you in ways you've yet to realize, that's for sure. Um, you know, I have mentioned earlier in, on tonight's programa that we have words for you, mi gente, and that most definitely applies to our next segment. You know, one of the biggest defining moments for me as a Chicano, and if you'll forgive the term, pocho poet, it happened to me in my 20s when uh, I went to a reading that was going on at Modern Times Bookstore in San Francisco, way, way back when they still had their big store over on Valencia Street. I knew nothing about what to expect. Earlier in the day, I'd seen a flyer announcing the event and decided to go on a whim. It said on the flyer that the writer reading that night was Dagoberta Gilb, who would be reading from his new collection of stories, The Magic of Blood. It's funny, but I can still see that flyer like it was yesterday. I may even have it still somewhere in some old cigar box. But anyways, I got there later on that night and soon after, Dagoberto started reading. He read a story called Romero's Shirt and as the story progressed, something very strange happened to me. I started to feel a familiarity that I'd never felt with a piece of literature before. Now, this wasn't just relating to a character like you are wont to do when you're reading a good book. This was something else way deeper. In Romero's Shirt, Dagoberto Gil was describing people I actually recognized. Brown-skinned people who could actually be a part of my everyday vida. Not stuffy, rigid characters or faraway English gentry. This was a story about Romero, a man who could be my own abuelo. And like I said earlier, that familiarity had a deep impact on me. And it's funny how things work, you know? Because looking back on it now, it sounds strange, the absence of my culture and my choice of literature. Growing up, mis roots were all around me. Spanish was spoken in La Casa, mi mamá grande making her homemade tortillas every afternoon, mi granny goyas, buñuelos, and tamales. La Grande 10-10, the undisputed AM Latino station, always playing in the background. But when it came to literature, solamente English was spoken here. I suppose it probably didn't help that outside of Mi Casa, solamente English was spoken there as well. These were the uh, dark, dark pre-internet days, mocosos. I'm talking about Nevada, California in the 1980s, when the only two Mexicans in sight were me and Señor Peña, the high school Spanish teacher. And in the four years of high school, where I first heard the term wetback, we read many, many dead white males to use the parlance of our time. But only uh, once did we read a Latino writer, a six-page short story called The Asholoto." by Julio Cortazar, an Argentinian writer who has become one of my favorites. My literary shelf went something like this, Marvel Comics, Never DC, sci-fi and fantasy books, Lord of the Rings, Sherlock Holmes, Mario Puzo's The Godfather, (laughs) when I was around 10 or 11, there's a cultural anomaly for you, Uh, rock and roll biographies and dead white males I would mentioned earlier. The beat poet soon followed as I got out of high school and eventually discovered Raymond Carver and the Bay Area poets like David Lerner and Bucky Sinister. And that goes all the way to that night at Modern Times when I went in there and, bam, Degoberto was reading and, like I said, the power of palabras. And now to add to my musings on these words, we have a very special guest joining us over El Telefono, reading an excerpt from that short story, Rometo's shirt. Here's the voice of Mr. Degoberta Gilb. Hey, mucho power, man. Bunch of power, Degoberto. <laughs> How are you, man? We're not,
5: we're um, not keeping you up, are we? Uh, not really. I mean, not even in, out here in Texas do we go to
0: bed that early. Oh, good, good, good. It <laughs> was thank muchas gracias for calling, uh, call, uh, letting us talk to you. We really appreciate it. Hey, uh, Degoberto I don't know if you could uh, heard it or not, but I was talking about the uh, first time I heard you read Romero's shirt in, in San Pancho. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. Was, I, oh, man, that was, it was such a night for me. And um, I was wondering if maybe you could just read the opening for us.
5: I'll, I'll do that.
0: Oh, gracias, gracias.
5: Um, yeah, okay, so it's uh, Romero's shirt. Juan Romero, a man not unlike many in this country, has had jobs in factories, shops, and stores. He has painted houses, dug ditches, planted trees, hammered, sawed, bolted, snake pipes, picked cotton, and chile and pecans, each and, and all for wages. Along the way, he has married and raised his children, and several years ago, he finally arranged it so that his money might pay for a house and, a house he and his family live in. He is still more than 20 years away from being the owner. It is, it is a modest house, even by El Paso standards, the building, in adobe a style, is made of stone, which is painted white, though the paint is gradually chipping off or being, being absorbed by the rock. It has two bedrooms, a den, which is, which is used as another, a small dining area, a living room, a kitchen, one bathroom, and a garage, which, someday, he plans to turn into another place to live. Although in a development facing a paved street, and in the neighborhood, it is—it has the appearance of of being almost on a half an acre. At the front is a garage of is a garden of of cactus, nopal, locofielo, and and agave. And there are there are weeds that grow tall with yellow flowers, which feed into thorn hard burrs. The rest is dirt and rocks of various sizes, some which have become which have been lined up to form a narrow path out of the graded dirt and walkway to the front porch, where, under a tile and one-by-tub and groove overhang, or a wooden chair and loveseat covered, covered by an old bedspread, its legless frame on, on the red cement slab. On the porch, and the porch look, <clears throat> once the porch looked onto an oak tree, Two, two of them are, two of their dried out stumps. The remain, the remaining one has, has a limb or two which still can produce bees. With so many amputations, its future is irresistible. Romero seldom runs. Romero seldom runs. Runs water through the garden hose. Though no, in the backyard, some patchy grass can almost seem suburban, at least to him. When he does, near the corner of his land, in the front, next to the sidewalk, is a juniper shrub, his only bright green plant, and Romero does not want it to yellow and die, so he makes special efforts on its behalf, washing off dust, keeping its leaves neatly pruned and and shaped. These days, Romero calls himself a handyman. He does odd jobs, which... Is exactly how he advertises no job too small in in the throwaway paper he hangs wallpaper and doors, he paints lays carpet does just about anything someone will will call and ask him to do. It doesn't earn him much, but sometimes it's barely enough and he's and he but he's his own boss, and he's had so many bad jobs over those other years. One's no more dependable. he's learned that this suits him. At one time Romero did want more and he believed that he could he could have it simply through work, but no matter what he did, his children still had to be born at the county hospital. Even years later was there that his oldest son went for serious medical treatment because Romero couldn't afford the private hospitals. He tried he tried not to worry about how he earned his money in Mexico where his parents were born and he spent much of his youth. So many things were available, and any work which allowed for food, clothes, and housing was to be honored. By the standards there, Romero lived well, except this wasn't Mexico. And even though there were, there were those who did worse, even here, there were many who did better and had more. And a young Romero too often felt ashamed by... What he saw as his failure. But time passed, and he got older. As he saw, he didn't live in poverty, and here he finally came to realize what was where he was, where he and his family were were going to stay. Life in El Paso was much like the land, hard, but one could make do with what, what was offered. Just as his parents had, Romero always thought, it was a beautiful place or a home. Yet, yet people, people he knew left to Houston, Dallas, Los Angeles, San Diego, Denver, Chicago, and came back for holidays with, with stories of high wages and acquisition. And more and more people crossed the river in rags, taking work, his work, at any price. Romero constantly had to discipline himself by remembering the past, how his parents lived. He had to teach himself to appreciate what he did have. His car, for example, he kept up since his early 20s. He'd had it painted three times in that period, and he worked on it so devotedly, that even now it was in as good a condition as almost any car could be. For his children, he tried to offer more an assortment of clothes for his daughter, lots of toys for his sons. He denied his wife nothing, but she was a woman who asked for little. For himself, it was much less. He owned some work clothes and a T-shirt, and T-shirts necessary for his jobs, as well as a set of good enough, he thought, shirts he'd had since before the car. He kept up, he kept up a nice pair of custom boots, And in a closet, hung a pair of slacks for a wedding or a baptism or an important mass. He owned two jackets, a leather one from Mexico, and and a warm nylon one for cold work days. And he owned a wool-clad Pendleton shirt, his favorite piece of clothing, which he bought right after the car and before his marriage. Because it really was a was a good was good looking besides being functional, he wore it anywhere and everywhere with confidence that its quality would always be both in style and appropriate.
0: Oh yes, that was the voice of Dagoberto Gilb reading one of my favorite of his cuentos, Romero's shirt, an excerpt from it. Gracias, Dagoberto the, the Pendleton shirt man, the Latino security blanket, you know. It's funny, yeah. It's amazing. Uh, uh, you know, r- recognizing um, images of ourselves, culturally speaking, it, it can be such an empowering thing. I mean, I, like like I, I was, God, it still affects me. Um, what writer or artist uh, had you first had this experience with? Well,
5: you know, it came I came a long way. Um, I guess, you know, in terms of Chicago, well, let, me, let me just start a little bit. Pre, what I became aware. Of, I mean, I, I like you. You know, we read what we're offered. Yes. And of course, you know, we're, we're really popular, and we get to read us a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so actually, I'd never encountered anything by us. And so I, being sort of a difficult person. I began when I finally started loving reading, which I didn't come too early or young in any way, I started liking the Russians, and it's probably because they weren't Americans, as weird as that sounds. Oh, okay. And I like Dostoevsky and I like Tolstoy.
0: Oh, and, mira.
5: and And I think what happened to me is one day I was reading Tolstoy, and um. And I don't remember what it was, a story or or a novella or what it was. But his main character, who, you know, when when you're reading a a story or a novel, you sort of, you become the main character. Yes, yes. And you think you're having the same experiences of, like, playing the piano and (laughs) whatever it was. (laughs) And, And I remember that he was going away to his vacation home yeah I think it's called a DACA or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah, like in like Kiev or orient or in Paris or something. And all of a sudden i re- I realized that he is, and whether it was in the story or my mind said it and saw it. he was waving goodbye to the cherry pickers <laughs> i'm I'm being waved to goodbye, and I'm gonna stay and watch that watch that do go away.
0: So you recognize that? It, you recognize that? Yeah.
5: It was like a, a shocking recognition that, that that we aren't all, it isn't all a metaphor. Yeah. That in fact, I was reading about rich people. I guess I'd never realized that Russians could be so rich. Even as I was reading it, I didn't think of it. And then, so, then I sort of, you know, I don't know what happened in, in my youth. I was lucky enough that I got to see Teatro Campesino, Luis Valdez. Oh, his wow. shows, his actos and stuff.
1: Wow. And I,
5: and I started looking at that and saying, you know, I actually, I'm a city guy. And so, I, I, I in some sense, I thought the farm workers, I don't know where broccoli comes from, I thought broccoli came from Safeway. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't really know, and in a lot of ways, I wasn't sure. I thought, most of the, even uh, you know, the Mexicanos, Chicanos I knew were like butchers who, and they worked in factories and things. Well, so that,
0: anyway. that's that's a, a, a that you bring up an interesting point because Latinos, you know, in America, were working class people, right? Right, and, exactly. And, right. and many of your stories are about carpenters and mecánicos. Um, yet this isn't really a world in, that I think generally finds much substance or time for art. Could could you talk un poco about that? How um how you think writing is often perceived by Working class gente?
5: Well, I don't think it's perceived at all, <laughs> <laughs> and and that's kind of why I'm such a successfully a successful selling author. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. Hey, I have all of your books, Dagoberto. Come on, no, no, I, no, I I think I have two copies that. of each, too. <laughs>
5: <laughs> well, it is kind of it is kind of hard. I mean, so you know, in my case, I, I started reading Tomás so Rivera, Orlando Hinoza, even one meaningful, the Mexican, I mean, I started fell, falling in love and I looked around and nobody else has ever heard of these
0: people. Oh, uh, Ron Rufo and Pedro Paramo. You know, I have to be careful with that book because when I read it, I actually have ghosts come into my house. He's <laughs> that, that amazing. He's amazing. Well, I'm a, I'm a big fan of
5: uh, Llanon Yamas, the, the Valley in Flames. Oh, yeah. That is like one of the If He's written one more book, you know, but in the... He would have get, been given the Nobel Prize just for three little, thin, beautiful, as good books as any have ever been written. Two of them. You only wrote two of them.
0: What well, about the medico Paredes? I, I think,
5: oh, uh, of course. You know, I even got to know Americo, Yes. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What a great man.
0: God, definitely the ham on and the beans, right? Bring me the ham on and the beans. <laughs> oh,
5: I mean, he's just got so much good stuff. Uh, that's, a, I, that's I like. With with a pistol in his hand, and um, that was my a uh, shocker. that That book is truly one of the great books of uh of our of our people.
0: Well, that's another point too. And and uh, you know, literature is often seen as entertainment to people, but often with Latino literature, there's also that context of learning about our history. Like you, you just said, Américo Paredes is one of those. I mean, he he taught us some, uh, taught me so much, you know, in just his fiction and when the writing and he's done. Right.
5: Definitely. Well. It is. It is our history but I think with us that yeah, we're still the shock of even seeing anything we've written in print at all. Yes, it feels like we're being taught culture and and like suddenly like oh we have culture and and you know <laughs> most of the time nobody else has that worry. We're just still we're still fighting for our existence. It's I, I frankly you know I don't even want to talk about how old I am, but I I think I thought. Oh my god, I'm it's like such an open territory. I'm gonna I'm gonna be a writer and then people will see I'll I'll make it and we'll just open up the world. That, well, you, and, uh, yeah, well,
0: uh, I feel like you've done that, uh, Dagoberto, I really do. Um Gracias for your time and your palabras. Is is there any contact info or Web that people can go to, to check out what you're up to?
5: Well, um the best thing is to go to I have a Facebook page. Uh-huh. I don't even know what it's called, it's just my name.
0: Yeah, Dagoberto Gilb, yes
5: yeah and his uh, facebook page Jeff. Yeah. all right it, it, it's mine and I, I really am grateful thank you for in, inviting me on your show
0: gracias dagoberto hopefully you come back for a much longer longer interview it's been it's uh, been like a pleasure that. talking to you my man seriously
5: thank you thank you much adios
0: Bye. that was uh dagoberto gilb he's the author of numerous works of fiction most notably magic of blood and before the end after the beginning he's a regular contributor to npr's fresh air and is the, was the director of Centro Victoria, Center for Mexican-American Literature and Culture at the University of Houston, Victoria. Yeah, to hear more of his work, why don't you just go down to a local bookstore and buy one of his libros. And speaking of local, here's a few Spanglish type of eventos you pochos and pochos out there might be interested in. For those of you interested in celebrating the Mexica Año Nuevo properly, for Flint, Tech Tecpatl which represents movement and the initiation of something. There's a celebration going on right now at the San Francisco City College Mission Campus, and it goes until las 10 de las Noche tonight. That's 10 p.m. and mañana in San Jose at the Emma Prusch Park, there's a sunrise ceremony starting at 6 en la mañana, followed by events going on through Saturday and Sunday. The address of Emma Prusch Park is 647 South King Road in San Jose. And on Saturday, April 2nd at 8 p.m., the second annual memorial festival for beloved Bay Area Chilean singer Rafael Manriquez takes place at the Freight and Salvage Coffeehouse. This year's concert features John Santos and his quartet, as well as La Peña Community Chorus and direct from Chile, Francisco Villa and Patty Carmosa. The Freight and Salvage Coffeehouse is located at 2020 Addison Street right here in Berkeley. Yes, Berkeley Califas, as it were. Uh, yes, now we're going to take a musical break with some Son Jarocho music going out to all the damas y caballeros over from Son de la Bahia. Negra Graciana doing the Son Jarocho song, La Vieja. You, and I was going out to all the damas y caballeros at Son de la Bahia. If you want to hear some good old-fashioned Son Jarocho music, this group of people meet at La Peña almost every second Friday for Fandango. Go to their Facebook page, Son de la Bahia for more information on that sweet Son Jarocho music and where to hear it. Yes, uh, yeah, I am Josiah Luis, and you are tuned to the 94.1 KPFA Radio Estacion de la Comunidad. And you've been listening to Full Circle's production of the Spanglish Power Hour. And up next, we have more words from the border brujo, Guillermo Gomez Peña, as he presents us with a most frightening proposition.
1: What like in the past years? <clears throat> When I'm in Mexico, you know, people are constantly asking me, ¿no? ¿Quién inventó este p- llamado Donaldo Trompa? Is he an actor impersonating a businessman, impersonating a politician, impersonating an infomercial actor? What kind of world would it be with Trump as a president, no? So I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking that we have this... Extremely popular presidential candidate who behaves like a far right wing performance artist on steroids. He believes Mexican immigrants are rapists and drug dealers, calls for the immediate deportation of 11 million undocumented migrants, wishes to build a much higher border wall, and claims he will make Mexico pay for it. It's not a hyperbolic cartoon, it's La Neta. Trump also wants to deport all non-American Muslims and ban all future Muslims from entering the U.S. He believes or claims to believe that internment camps and waterboarding are legitimate punishment strategies for quote-unquote terrorist suspects. In fact, he thinks that the Black Lives Matter movement is a terrorist organization and that terrorist attacks are actually boosting his ratings. He also says, again, he claims to be unscripted, that we need global warming, that we should abolish the Department of Education. There are dozens of even more outrageous statements he has made recently, and his daily unscripted rantings are masterpieces of surreal imbecility, yet his ratings are on the rise. It's the Berlusconi effect 3.0. The more inflammatory, controversial, and racist he is, the more his popularity increases. But if this colorful moron wins the presidency, excuse my deviant mind, I can imagine various positive scenarios. The international community, governments and businesses, ...would boycott the U.S. and expel our country from international forums, summits and world conferences. Many countries would consider him persona non grata and forbid him to set foot in their territory. At home, there would be dissent in Congress and the House of Representatives, both from Republicans and Democrats. Lo mismo con el Pentágono, ¿no? Todos los generales se pondrían en contra del señor Trump. Perhaps our apathetic citizenry would wake up. The U.S. media would also have an epiphany and become a true critical moral force. Cartoonists, comedians, conceptual and public artists, independent filmmakers, satirists and poets would have even more substantial daily material to work with women blacks latinos and queers worldwide would have yet one more concrete and iconic enemy to mobilize and fight against daily in brief we could become a politically and artistic interesting country not your typical dormant consumer democracy we have slowly become in the last years. Am I delusional? Perhaps. I'm kidding. Si, sí, estoy de acuerdo. However.
0: see sí, Guillermo, you are indeed delusional. <laughs> and thank, well, gracias for that. Presenting us, that was Guillermo Gomez Peña, presenting us with a truly frightening proposition. And for those of you who want to hear Guillermo, Guillermo Gomez-Pena live, and believe me, there is no better way to experience the border brujo, he will be performing at the Diego Rivera Theater on the City College of San Francisco's Ocean Campus on Friday, March 18th. Definitely go check him out. Now, as we come to the end of the program, as always, we pause and take in the view from the borders of Trumplandia. We close tonight's Spanglish Power Hour with a view from the borders of Trumplandia. Darth Trump's ties to white supremacist groups were revealed last week as he continues his rise to power. And while all the monolinguists, Bay Area optimists around here just keep on chanting that comforting mantra, there's no way he can win. There's just no way he can win. Darth Trump and his stormtroopers march closer and closer to that whitest of houses. People, it's time to put aside our berserkly delusions and come face-to-face con la verdad. There's a whole lot of white America out there that wants Darth Trump as Presidente of these Estados Unidos. At this point, the outrage we're all feeling towards his sexist, racist, elitist remarks will not stop him. Our disbelief and anger at what he says he wants to turn America into will not stop him. And while the speculation and analyzation continues, permit me to cut to the chase. Who's going to stop Darth Trump? Pues the number of votes will. ¿Y quién tiene esos numbers? Who are those numbers? Pues los latinos are those numbers. Everyone, from ABC News to your tia Lucha, knows can we have the numbers to stop him. I'm talking to mis latinos hermanos y hermanas, mis tios, mis tías, mis amigos y abuelos out there in Aslan when I say, can you see the irony in this walking hairpiece regularly ranting and threatening the one group in America who has the power to stop him? Jorge Ramos of Noticiero Una Visión and who Trump once had physically removed from a news conference for asking questions about his proposed immigration policies puts it like this. Trump seems to think he can win the White House with only the white vote. I believe that the only way to win the White House is with the Latino vote. Now, permit me to be the Diablos advocate at this point and mention that we, as Latinos, have a pretty dismal record when it comes to voting here in Los Estados Unidos to overcome. Remember this, mi gente. Between 2000 and 2012, supposedly the number of Hispanics eligible to vote grew by almost 10 million, 10 million. But the number of actual Latino voters increased only half as much and during the last two presidential elections fewer than half of eligible latino voters cast ballots compared with around two-thirds of whites and blacks so i'll continue to be the diablos advocate and say well why would the average working class latino in the u.s even care about politics after all the one issue that usually unifies latinos citizenship for unauthorized immigrants is not something the democrats or the republicans will consider And Meanwhile, the president's record of 2 million deportations continues to rise. The politics of America are something that Latinos have become used to viewing from the outside. Because this is our momento. This is nuestra obligación to finally use our voices in a relevant political way. We have the chances to stop the man who refers to us as rapists and wants to deport 11 million of us, who wants to build a 1,900-mile wall to further separate us from nuestras familias? Latino voter registrations have begun appearing in more and more numbers, and you ask most registered Latino voters, especially the young ones, why they've registered, and they're going to answer that they're registering because of Darth Trump, not because they want to vote for him, but because they want to vote against him. Music to my ears, mi gente. Let's keep on singing that cancion. Darth Trump is our dragon to slay. He is our American horror to face. And when we look back on this momento in history, it will be remembered as the Latino who was responsible for defeating Darth Trump. We have the numbers. We as a people need to do this until we get a Mexican abuelita in the White House. Get out there, mi gente. Vote against Darth Trump. And let's deport him and his hair pieces. Before we have the Death Star, where the White House used to be. Reporting from the borders of Trumplandia, yo soy Josiah Luis. Pues queridos listeners, that almost brings us to the end of another episode of the Spanglish Power Hour. I want to say muchas gracias to the Border Brujo, Guillermo Gomez Peña, and to Dagoberto Guild for calling in. It was a very special show. And if you like what you've been hearing, be sure to tune into the next episode of the Spanglish Power Hour, which, we're at, which is going to air on Friday, April 22nd from 7 to 8 p.m. That upcoming episode will feature an interview with Bay Area Chicano cartoonist extraordinaire Jaime Crespo, as well as an appreciation of the only Latino poet of the beat generation, Frank Lima. And we're going to have a live musical performance in the KPFA studios by spoken word Bocho Group, a side of Frida Xolotl. That's happening on Friday, April 22nd. Now I'd like you all to know that the Spanglish Power Hour is produced by members of the full circle. My co-producer and man on the board is the one and only J.C. Howard. Our executive producer is Miss M., Join Moore as our technical consultant and the one and only and Frank. Well, he's our everything. I've been your host, Josiah Luis. Until next time, I los watch Feliz Año Nuevo. And up next, going strong for over 35 years, La Onda Bajita. Stay tuned.